the Canadian Military History Podcast. Provided by the Royal Regiment of Canada. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. To start off today's episode, I'd like to start with looking at the messages that have come in, as I normally do. On the 27th of October, I noticed that the podcast feed was at 8,900 hits. And then on the 1st of November, it jumped up to 10,000 hits. Here we are recording on November the 3rd. And we're at 11,481 hits. I'm amazed. I can't believe how many people have been listening to the podcast. And we're only at episode 8. So this counter is just going to keep rolling and rolling. I might have to add some extra zeros to it. I don't know when we'll get to a million hits. But anyhow, looking at the guest book, I have a message from Craig Fisher. I believe he retired as a major from the Toronto Scottish. He says, great idea. I'll try to incorporate it into grade 10 Canadian and grade 12 world history. I've just realized that Cliff Trollope and I were in the same platoon for phase two and phase three. Phase two and phase three are infantry officer courses taught in Gagetown, New Brunswick. Captain Greg Patterson from the Toronto Scottish says, tremendous idea and effort, Mike. I just listened to part one and two with the Warrant Officer 2, Stan Edgerton. Even having known Stan for over 24 years and counting, I still heard some things I hadn't known. Now I need to find time to start backtracking to the older posts. Well, Greg Patterson will be surprised to learn that there is another Toronto Scottish interview, and that would be the one with Sergeant Greg Briggs. So that takes care of the website guestbook. Going into Facebook, there hasn't been much traffic there, just me posting and keeping people up to date as to what's going on with the hit counter. So today is November the 3rd, 2013, and that might not seem relevant if you're listening to this as the episodes come out, but later on, people will start learning about the podcast site and start listening to episodes out of sync with the production. I wanted to add a small feature, just because we're going into the 100th anniversary for many, many things here coming up. The 100th anniversary of the creation of many regiments, 100th anniversary of World War I, and things of that nature. Not only that, we're heading into some other significant anniversaries as well. It's just going to be the next 20 years are going to be historically significant as we mark many, many, many significant military achievements, military battles, and military events. I want to draw the attention to a website that people rely on. It's called Somnia, S-O-M-N-I-A. And what that stands for is Spotlight on Military News and International Affairs. This is produced by the Canadian Forces College, and all you do, just do a quick Google search on Somnia, S-O-M-N-I-A, and you'll be directed straight into the website. Why am I talking about this website? Well, there's a little feature on that website that says, on this day. It typically pops up, and all it says is what happened on this day in military history. I'm just going to pick one of the events from the On This Day feature, and that is 1894, on this day, November the 3rd. Billy Barker, not Billy Bishop, but Billy Barker, born 1894, lived till 1930. He was a fighter pilot, born on this day at Dauphin, Manitoba in 1894. Died in a plane crash at Rock Cliff Air Base, March 12, 1930. Barker shot down 35 enemy planes, making him Canada's number one World War I flying ace, and won the Victoria Cross for a single-handed attack 
against a squadron of 60 German planes. So that's part of the On This Day feature found at the, on the website created by the Canadian Forces College known as Spotlight on Military News and International Affairs. And I'll put the link in the show notes. So if you're interested in that, it's updated daily. A well-maintained site has all type of military news, equipment coming down, international news, talks about Afghanistan and other little bits of news. A lot of people check out this website before they start their day when they're having their morning coffee. Today, my guest is Chief Warrant Officer Kevin West, MMM, MSM, CD. Kevin West joined the Navy Reserve in the summer of 1983, and he went through the signals trade in the Navy. In 1995, he transferred to the regular force as a Naval signalman. In 1990, Kevin West applied for an occupational transfer to the Air Force and into the trade of Airborne Electronic Sensor Operator. In 2000, he blended his experience in the Navy with his experience in the Air Force when he was posted to 423 Maritime Helicopter Squadron in Shearwater, where he served in the helicopter air detachments of HMCS Iroquois and Preserver. Chief Warrant Officer West was key in the development of the NCM Professional Development Center in Saint-Jean. He was the first NCM to be appointed as a school commandant, something strictly reserved for the officer corps. He earned the appointment of the Royal Canadian Air Force Chief Warrant Officer in November 2012 and is currently the Canadian Forces Chief Warrant Officer. He was also the Chief Warrant Officer in Trenton at 8 Wing between 2009 and 2011. For those of you who know Canadian history and Canadian news, you would know that 8-Wing Trenton went through something very significant during that period. And I'm very lucky that Kevin West had the courage and the candor to speak about those troubling days. Here's my interview with Chief Warrant Officer Kevin West. Chief Warrant Officer West, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure and an honor to be part of your project here and look forward to uh, having a discussion with you. Sounds good. I've been looking forward to this as well. You and I met during the 200th anniversary commemoration parade of the Battle of York, which was held in Toronto. And then subsequently from that, you were part of the head table at the Toronto Garrison Warrant Officers and Sergeants Mess Dinner. Yeah, we did. And coming back to the, the parade, uh, commemorating the 200 years of 1812 and the Battle of York, that had to be in my 30 years of military career, most probably one of the most impressive things to see considering, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, I think it was about 1,000, if not 1,500 troops of Army and Navy, because at that time the Air Force wasn't around, parading through downtown Toronto. And I would say what hit me the most was the support in downtown Toronto. The amount of people lined along the street of the parade uh, was just impressive. And the, the comments I got walking back to my lodgings before I headed off to the dinner and things like that, because I was in uniform, was just fantastic. So it really showed the support uh, for today's troops and the support for our history. It was very, very impressive. Yeah. You're my first member of the Air Force coming onto the podcast, but you also have Navy service. I do. Yeah, I started actually my career in the Navy. I actually, my, my whole life started basically with the name. My, my father was a sailor, and then I uh, served in sea cadets, and then I served in the Naval Reserves for a very short period, and joined the regular force Navy for approximately five years before I went to the Air Force, which kind of put me to the link of the uh, the parade again back in Toronto in 1812 to see the sailors go by. And uh, so I did, did actually have a link, even though I wasn't wearing the, the same uniform. Uh, so it, it was great to see. So that takes us to our first question, which is, why did you join the Canadian Armed Forces? That's an interesting question. I actually had to think about that a little bit. It's been a while. So I guess the main reason I joined, I have to be honest, I joined because I didn't want to go to school anymore, which I think there's a lot of us in that, in that boat. It wasn't that at that point in time, although I had lived a life because, like I said before, I had served as, I had served as a cadet uh, for many years and I'd served in the reserves. 
So going to the Navy was kind of a natural fit. But I initially joined was mainly for the school. I mean, like, I can't say that it was because I wanted to serve my country at that point in time. It may have been, but I don't think I recognized that at that point in time. So it was mainly stop going to school. And as my father said, if you're going to stop going to school, you got to work. And that to me was a, one of the best ways. And I, I, I enjoyed the, the life of the uniform and the military to the exposure I'd had at that point in time when I joined in 1985. So the regular force. Yeah. When did the irony hit you? Because you said you joined the Navy to avoid going to the school. And the first thing they do is they put you in a school. Yeah, and that's funny because all and you know, Mike, you've been around this organization a long time too. The the funny thing is, a lot of us. I'll use myself as an example, as I said, joined because I didn't want to go to school, and with and in my 30 years, it seems like I've been going to school ever since because we have so much training and education. And and I don't know, like you said, the irony. I don't know if part of it is well, they're paying me to go to school now, so it's more enjoyable. But it was actually learning something that I I felt I wanted to do, vice learning what in the school system, what we're told we're going to learn. Right? So I think that made it easier to uh, that transition piece. Right. So what was the world like when you joined? Another interesting question. Well, I joined 1985, regular force, mid-80s. So and I was just turning 18. The military wasn't, and I say big as in not in its size, but uh, we didn't hear a lot about the military. I had a background because my dad had served and things like that, but uh, most most of the folks I went to school with, I'm originally from Quebec City, really had zero exposure. We never talked about the military except for the, you know, the guys that I was in cadets with and things like that. So the, the world, if we compare it to today, 30 years later, we hear about the military a lot, and I mean, granted, a lot of that is because of the operations we've been doing and, and our fallen from Afghanistan has actually shed a lot of light on what we do. So the world was a lot different that part of, you know, at that time because military was a big thing even though I'd been exposed to it and a lot of my friends I got to admit most probably thought it was kind of like well, what are you doing that for like well why would why would you want to join they called it the army but uh, you know why would you join the, uh, the forces and I just for me again come back to it was an easy way out of school so what were you like when you joined you've already touched on you didn't want to go to school anymore you had some influences I was you know I joined I was young and I guess maturity wise I might have been young too but I always felt that I liked hands-on kind of stuff even high school is academic to a certain point. So I, I would, I'll say I was unchallenged. So I was looking for more of a challenge. And uh, But I always liked, and I guess it was growing up in cadets and in the reserves, was I liked the, I guess, the structure, uh, even though I had immaturity. But I, I liked the structure of being, your, your kind of day was lined, was lined up for you and things like that. So that, it's the kind of guy, whether you know, I, I liked structure. Or maybe I grew up that way, too, because we had kind of a structured household. So it was kind of a natural fit to glide over to the military side of the house. What was your most memorable experience or your greatest achievement in the Canadian Armed Forces? Well, I'd like to kind of break that into two. That's all right. Yeah. So if I look at you know the question of my greatest achievement, I got to say is being appointed as Canadian Forces Chief Warrant Officer. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, you know, and that's bar none. Uh, on the military side, obviously. On the personal side, I guess it would be the birth of my kid. On the professional side, obviously it's that. Just such an honor to have even been considered into this position. And not just being considered, but I've been asked, I did an interview not that long ago, and they asked me, well, when did you think that you would ever be the Canadian Forces Chief Warrant Officer? Well, about 15 minutes after I got the call from General Lawson stating that he was he was taking me on as, as his CF Chief, right? Uh, it's not something that we just don't think about. But I got to say, that is my crowning achievement, I guess, for lack of better words. Uh, within now, my most memorable, uh, and that's why I'm, I like to separate them, is I was given an opportunity in 2007 to be the first non-commissioned member as commandant of our, at the time, uh, non-commissioned members professional development center. Right. That, I must say, had to be my most memorable moment in my career in the fact that it was something that no other NCM had had the chance of doing. Was I ready for it? Uh, I look back in hindsight now, no. <laughs> 
but uh, that's kind of a different story. But it is, you know, that was very memorable. It brought a lot of attention to the school. And I guess to me in a way, so I, you know, I became kind of, um, I'll say popular for lack of better words, not because of me, but because of the position and being that first guy to be able to have the opportunity to do it. So, you know, as a member of something, you know, I'll remember, I remember so much about every position I've ever held, every job I've done, everywhere I've been. But that one there is, I have to say, the most memorable because it was unique at the time. Right. And then sometimes I find you get your best results by putting people in who really don't feel that they're ready because they're hanging on by their fingernails at the beginning. <laughs> and then and then next thing you know, the, the results just explode from whoever it is, even a junior leader or someone more seasoned. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Mike. Uh, I got to... When I got appointed, I was a I was a brand new chief warrant officer. I was promoted chief warrant officer in 2006, appointed there in 2007. And I always used it as a joke. They put the young guy in there as the guinea pig <laughs> because if he messed it up, he had time to recover and maybe save a career, right? Right. But you're right. What you're saying, you know, because I didn't have any as a new chief warrant officer. I didn't have a whole lot of preconceived ideas of things, and so like you're saying, hanging on by the by the skin of your teeth, just trying to figure out day to day how how things work and what you should be doing. Yeah, that, that's a great way of putting it. You know, you know, by putting people into those uncomfortable situations at a at especially when they're early either in rank and like I say it doesn't matter if they're junior leader senior leader uh, I think they I think you're right they do learn you know we do tend to learn quicker and maybe to a better level because we don't have any preconceived ideas or notions before we go in right so who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character you've ever encountered I, I got to admit I would have to say it's who I would consider who has been my greatest mentor throughout my or in the latter part of my career especially as a chief. And that would be Chief Warrant Officer Danny Gilbert, who served as the Canadian Forces Chief Warrant Officer uh, while I was, when I first, as I arrived in Saint-Jean to the NCM Professional Development Centre. He was actually the last Air Force Chief Warrant Officer to be the CF Chief before me. Danny was a great mentor. I learned so much from him. The influence he had on me opened my eyes to the influence that our rank level has within the organization of the Canadian Armed Forces. He has to be, to this day, still most probably one of the smartest men I've ever worked with. And I'll come to the memorable character part because he is a character, but just his thought process. He is one of the founders of our modern day NCM professional development. Our strategy that was written in 2003 was basically developed by him and obviously others, but he was kind of the founding father. And he had a tremendous amount of influence on me and mentorship. I spent a year with him when I first went to St. Jean as the Commandant. Uh, he was actually, he, he got posted there when he finished as CF Chief for the, his last year of service and uh, was such an asset to me. It was just unbelievable what I learned from that. And I'll never, ever forget. And I've had lots of great mentors throughout my career, but he's one that kind of changed my whole view, vision, and thought process, uh, especially for this rank level. And you know, we talk about memorable characters. Uh, he is that. I don't know if you know him. If how many times you've had the opportunity to meet him, uh, no. he is a character. I mean, he's uh, opinionated, uh, extremely intelligent, but very opinionated. Very uh, has the gift of the gab. Can talk to anybody about anything. And like when he walks into a room, you know who just walked into the room. And I always found that fascinating because there's very few people I know that have that impact on people when they go to uh, go into something and uh, so he yeah he's been a you know he's been my man i still keep contact with him on a regular basis especially since i've been in this uh, in this new appointment as, as canadian forces chief uh, i talk to him fairly regularly but you know just bounce things off the man so he, he's been a big influence on my um especially the latter part of my career right what was the greatest challenge you had to overcome the biggest challenge you know i mean it's uh <laughs> 
as we were talking earlier, his public record was being the wing chief warrant officer in 8th Wing Trenton uh, during the period when Russell Williams was, at the time, still serving colonel and the wing commander. Uh, I served with him for a period of about 10 months before his arrest uh, in connection to the, well, not connection, but for him when he was charged with the, the murders and uh, all the other incidents that he was involved with. And challenge, it was a challenge on the leadership side. It was a challenge on a personal side. And, uh, and I'll kind of talk about both of them separately here. Uh, I'll go to the leadership side. Not knowing, you know, nobody could ever, ever be prepared for that. I, well, if anybody's prepared for that, I think this was a major issue. When that, this whole situation started, I actually ended up being, as far as I know, the first member of the Canadian Armed Forces to know he had been arrested because I had received a phone call from his wife late the night of his arrest stating what had happened. And on the leadership side, from that point in time, everything changed because how do, how do you handle this? How do, what am I going to do? Who do I call? Who do I? And the reactions I had personally on the leadership side, I, I must say, come down to how we're trained within the military. That initial piece of it was pure training. When I received the call was reaction to a situation. Who do I call? Who needs to know? Who should know? And then as the situation developed, things changed. And that's where the whole leadership piece changed. You know, I was commended for it. I was recognized for it. But that recognition that I received was really the team of, of 8th Wing Trenton, Canadian Forces Base Trenton at the time, because it affected, you know, almost 5,000 people, I would say, almost directly on that wing. And my leadership, as I would say, style changed from that point on, or after the, after the situation of things had calmed down and, and kind of had time to reflect. As a, as a leader, sometimes we tend to get, maybe we'll get wound up or get uh, fussed over you know, small stuff. Uh, <laughs> Or details that really, you know, is it is that big of a deal? And that taught me that sometimes, you know, there's there's bigger things to deal with, and I, I've learned to prioritize. <laughs> I can't imagine. Yeah, I've learned to prioritize prioritize a little better, I guess. Now, on the the biggest challenge, and the leadership side was a big challenge, obviously, because we needed to keep the wing together. We, at the time, Trenton, and it always is, but we were, you know, Afghanistan was full full bore at the time, so we were continuing sustainment there. We were about three weeks into the Haiti mission after the devastating earthquakes down there. Uh, we were preparing for GA, G20, and we were in the middle of and just starting the Olympics at that time. So the base was just, for lack of better words, was a zoo. Uh, we needed to maintain the focus on the operational piece at that point in time. And, uh, you know, and that's where everybody else comes in. And, you know, obviously, as the wing chief warrant officer, I'm not the one that did that. I was a part of it. But uh, there was some great leadership around that, that got us through that piece. The personal piece, I didn't realize till quite a time later of how much of an effect it had on me. You know, within the first month, I guess, or first three weeks, I, I realized the physical exhaustion that that had caused for lack of sleep, for lack of just the stress that that whole situation had caused. And then the, the, the thoughts of, well, what did I miss? What did it, and even today, in 2013, uh, and this happened, you know, I still, every once in a while, catch myself saying, there has, still has to be something that I missed, you know, being so close, because we were very close. I mean, a uh, hard thing to say and people to understand, but even still to this day, most probably one of the best military bosses or leaders that I've had in my career. But it shows to see that, you know, there was completely two different people. But the, the personal side, and, and I learned afterwards, as the, as the situation developed, and now a few years passed, of how much of an impact certain things have that we, we, you know, how much impact stress can have on, on us. Uh, I got to a point, and I, I, I didn't break down or anything, but physically, about three, four weeks past the, the initial arrest, my body started breaking down. Like I had a severe back pain and neck pain, and I actually had to go on leave. And they, they got related to stress that finally my body was telling me, okay, you haven't been sleeping, you're not eating properly and everything else, you need to sit down. So I learned a lot that we need to take care of ourselves as leaders. Right. And the challenge of when you're in a stressful situation of realizing 
when it's when you need to back away or when you need to step forward and trust the people that are around you. If it hadn't have been for uh, my assistant at the time, Sergeant Gil Laxamana, I wouldn't have got through that situation because he's the one that was watching from the outside telling, okay, you need to go home or you need to eat. You need to. He got at one point because I wasn't eating. He used to bring me lunch and he'd sit at my desk, eat his lunch with the lunch he'd brought me to make sure that I ate, <laughs> right? That he forced me to eat and things like that, right? So uh, it taught me a lot about that team side and how, how strong we may think we are personally, as, especially as chief warrant officers. You can't, you know, when something big happens, you need the support of the people around you. Absolutely. But it definitely yeah, it was the biggest challenge that I've lived through. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Uh, I guess so. You know, as this four months into my uh, my tenure now as the uh, Canadian Forces Chief Warrant Officer, I got to say, uh, I mean, I served as the Royal Canadian Air Force Command Chief before this for a short while, and I was impressed, but it was mainly focused to the Air Force about our people. Right now, you know, I've had a, I've traveled a lot in the last four months, heading out again next week out west, and our people are just unbelievable when we talk about professionalism and their dedication and their resiliency. I mean, we, you know, we have, uh, you know, coming out of Afghanistan, uh, the combat mission in 2011, and now coming out of Afghanistan in March of 20, uh, 2014. Our focus is changing. You know, we're really going to be focused on the readiness piece, getting ready for whenever we need to uh, step out again. And our people understand that, but uh, we have a lot of work that needs to be done to, for the people to focus on to that readiness piece and continue on with preparing for whatever the next mission is going to be. And we have a whole generation that all they know is our combat in Afghanistan. And uh, so, you know, the leadership has impressed me so much. Uh, I still get to go to St. Jean to the to the leadership school there every four weeks and talk to the intermediate leadership program, our warrant officer, petty officer, first class course, and the chief, chief petty officer, chief warrant officer course. And I mean, we're, we're set up for the future. I see it now on a daily basis. So I'm extremely proud to have the opportunity to serve as the Canadian Forces Chief Warrant Officer and to support our folks to get our mission done at the end of the day. Do you have any message you'd like to say to the CFNCMs? Yeah, uh, you know what? We're in a different time right now. The next few years financially, are going to, there's going to be some effects. Uh, we don't know what they are yet. We don't know. You know, we have a budget coming, and we're not quite sure what that's going to, what that's going to entail. But, you know, we still have the support, and I'm not partisan at all, but we have government support right now. We have huge support within Canada as a whole. Uh, we still sit at about 80% of approval rating. It's actually slightly above 80%, which is almost unheard of. We're one of the, we're the third or fourth profession out of 35 in Canada that got rated, that are rated, and uh, we, we sit at three or four. And that is because of, you know, as I'm talking to the members of Guinea Armed Forces, that is because of you, every single member we have. And our non-commissioned members are so professional, outstanding. I mean, most countries envy how our non-commissioned members specifically uh, are able to function in whatever situation we put them in. So we're in really, really good shape for the future. Future and because of those people and their families. Because at the end of the day, the families, we need to focus on the families and we need to make sure that we are focused on the families and provide what is needed for our folks and their families within the means that we have, especially fiscally, in order to get the operations done. So I just want to thank every single member, Army, Navy, Air Force, regular reserve, rangers, uh, CIC, you name them, and of course our civilians within the defense team for what they do on a daily basis and to enable us to be so successful. Thank you so much, Kevin, for taking the time to be on the podcast. I really appreciate your insight and where you've decided to take these four questions. All right, Mike, thank you very much for the opportunity and uh, look forward to uh, visiting the site and uh, seeing what other folks have had to say on these questions because I'm sure you get some very varied answers and uh, appreciate your time and your dedication and your service that you've been doing for a number of years now. So thanks very much, Mike. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Take care. All right. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. 
I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. NTAG music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.